What would you do with an extra tank of gas? Okay, okay, I know what you're thinking. Where is he going with this? It's a metaphor for living that I had not heard until now, when we interviewed today's guest. He's a true adventurer and a survivor of life's highest peaks and deepest valleys. And to complete the metaphor, yes, the fuel indeed ran out, and not just once. His narratives provide insight into his world of base jumping and climbing, as well as his life-altering experiences that have shaped his unique perspective on life, death, and everything in between. He's lost loved ones in tragic accidents and survived near-death experiences himself. You'll hear how he emerged with a view of life with extra mode activated, an extra tank of gas, something to be cherished and refueled every day with all the good things. Let's dive into this rich, emotional conversation between host Eric Weinmayer and guest Nick Martinez as we unravel the tale of this man defined by his passion for adventure and anchored by a profound understanding of life and the inevitability of death. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, this is Eric Weinmayer. Welcome to another episode of No Barriers. I'm excited to interview a friend of mine, a good friend of mine. I don't always interview friends, but uh, this guy was so special. We met, what, Nick, a month ago at Lotus Flower Tower, and since then have been really hanging out and climbing together. And you have an amazing no barrier story. And I, as I was getting to know you, I thought we got to interview you on the podcast because you have a lot of thoughts, a lot of amazing accomplishments, a lot of struggles, and people would really benefit to know your story. This is Nick Martinez, my, my friend here. How are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Just sitting in El Portal outside of Yosemite, place where I've been hanging out with you guys for the past week. Yeah, uh, celebrating my birthday with you. Hanging out at Facelift, doing some community work, and and climbing with you and a bunch of other monkeys. <laughs> yeah, it was a really beautiful event. All these climbers converge on the valley, and they pick up trash, and they create really good PR for the climbing community, as well as just a really good benefit to have a cleaner place for us all to climb in Yosemite and they do that event all over the world which is really neat and I didn't pick up any trash though I feel a little guilty because like I should have crawled up the trail trying to sniff like old banana peels and stuff like that but I didn't do it I was busy climbing with you Nick I'm sure we all do it like during the year we do it a lot so I, I wasn't like too worried about it <laughs> So Nick, you and I met on this really cool adventure. You were a good friend of my friend Felipe, and he said, I have a great friend who could be our third partner for 
Lotus Flower Tower. So we got to hang out in the Northwest Territories for like 10 days in the chilly weather and the cold rain. And it was a really fun experience to get to know you. Did you have a good time on that adventure that we just undertook? I keep telling everyone that it was the trip of a lifetime, you know, to be able to go to such a magical place, climb one of the 50 classics, you know, and mostly hang out at camp and dive into... Cooking food, um, playing the guitar, sitting in the rain. Amazing conversations, you know. Yeah. It was amazing. And that's where I really got to know your story. So let's start here, which is, how did you make your way to Yosemite? Because you live in Yosemite Valley full-time, which is really cool. It's like a dream for most people to be able to do that. How did you make your way to Yosemite? When I first started climbing, even before I started climbing, a friend of mine visited Yosemite. He wasn't a climber. He was here with his family, and he bought one of those books at the visitor center, and he had on his coffee table. And I started just going through the book and seeing all those, like that amazing landscape. And I felt like super connected. And eventually I started climbing in Brazil. I started climbing when I was 16 years old. And because of that book, I told myself, it doesn't matter how long it takes, one day I'll for sure visit this place. My grandparents were born in Spain, so I also have an European passport that allowed me to spend time in Europe. And after my mom passing, I didn't really know what to do. You know, I didn't feel like going to college or anything. And my dad said, like, yeah, just fly free, you know, and just go do whatever you want. So I moved mm. to Europe. Yeah. I had some friends living in the UK. So I said, let's go check it out, check out what's going on out in Europe. And you went to Arco, which is a brilliant place. Arco. Arco is like this really famous climbing area that I've been to a couple times. And you flew there and you worked there for a while or near there, right? Yeah. I worked in the Dolomites eventually. I've been, I was bouncing in between the UK and the Dolomites where I worked at different, different locations. But the highlight of my time in the Dolomites was just like getting to work in this mountain hut for three months. I didn't have cell phone, was like barely had any internet. I had to go to the library to get internet. And I was mostly like getting to know the local culture and get better at speaking Italian, communicating with people and climbing. That was like my main passion. So after some time in Europe, I think I spent two full years in Europe, I decided to take a road trip by myself. And in April of 2004, I landed in Yosemite Valley with the Yards bus and immigration almost didn't let me in because my English was so broken. And they thought, for sure, this kid, because I was 23 at the time, and they were like, for sure, this kid's coming here to work and become an illegal immigrant and cause trouble. Like, I, I'm still causing trouble these days, but... You are causing trouble. They were right. <laughs> <laughs> but you were but only that... going to stay for a little while, and then you stayed for months, right? And just climbed in the valley and loved it, right? 
Yeah. That first season, I stayed like for eight months. I was just going to come for two to three weeks. And I ended up meeting the right people and just didn't want to leave. I it was like, <laughs> so good. Well, it's the Mecca of climbing. I say in the world, I mean, the Dolomites is one Mecca and Yosemite Valley is another. It's almost has this like kind of spiritual feel for climbers, right? To come to this amazing place that you read about. You also listened to or watched Masters of Stone, which was a series of climbers doing amazing stuff. So you watch like Dean Potter do speed climbing and all these cool adventures on that old, on those old videos. And that inspired you too, right? Right. Like back in Brazil, we used to import these VHS tapes. And that's how I got psyched on going climbing. And eventually, when I came to the U.S., I went from watching the films Eric Perlman, our friend Eric Perlman, put together, which he did an amazing job, to helping him on filming Sean and Cedar when they were speed climbing Nutcracker. Yeah, for Masters of Stone. So Nutcracker is like this five-pitch, what would you say, 500-foot rock face on an area called Manure Pile Buttress, right? And they climbed, they soloed it in five minutes, right? That was what they did for the the show. Right. A lot of my friends soloed the route. I'm not really into free soloing, never been. But, yeah, they ran up that thing in five minutes. Five pitches in five minutes. You also filmed, or were part of the film for the Uber Brothers, when they were trying to do their speed ascents up El Capitan, right? You were on that film project as well. So you got to be a guy who saw these things on Masters of Stone and then got to meet all these people and be a part of it, which is crazy, right? Got to, yeah, basically meet my climbing heroes, which was like the way I met every single one of them was in such an organic way. I never pushed or said, oh, I'm their biggest fan. I feel they treated me the same way I treated you then, with kindness, and they we were all psyched on the same types of activities, and just eventually we were sharing adventures, sharing dinners, sharing a bunch of stuff. And Grip Magazine, I saw an interview on you, and they called you a stone monkey. You were like part of that era of these climbers in this generation they called the stone monkeys and so how did that get started like that name and that era i don't really know on how it got started but it was just a part of this like next generation coming into the scene and uh pushing their own limits you know on because you had the first generation folks right that were like the royal robins and warren harding and then you had the second generation. So this was like the, what, early 2000s, right? Like third or fourth sort of generation of climbers really pushing the envelope in Yosemite, right? My friends, Ammon McNeely, Ivo Ninov, all these people, Dean Potter, James Lucas, Aaron Jones, Dave Turner. These people came into the scene and I'm sh- there's like a, that kind of people that I'm probably like not naming here. Jim Bridwell, I know you met him and hung with him, right? Yeah, Jim was like, this comes from the Stone Masters generation. So he like inspired this new generation, the Stone Monkeys, on doing all these things 
and living the Yosemite dream. Yeah. And you made a name for yourself. You love climbing, but when you do hard, amazing things, your name gets out there because you did a bunch of hard rope solos up El Capitan and were on the rock for days upon days in Port Ledges. What were some of your favorite climbs? If I had to name a few of them, it was probably the Tempest on El Cap and when hell was in session on the porcelain wall where I got to do the second ascent of the route, put up by Eric Cole and Itakeda. And those guys made a name for themselves for putting up like all these deadly roots people it, the roots like had a reputation for uh, if you fall you're gonna die but yeah i felt like i was really good with my systems and rope soloing it was something i've always felt comfortable with my friend dave turner mentored me he taught you a lot yeah he taught me a lot on on my system so i started with easier walls a couple of easier walls, and my third ever big wall was climbing Mescalito, where I spent 11 days up there hanging out by myself and up there with my thoughts. That's all I had, climbing, <laughs> climbing. Which is amazing. Yeah, so. I don't think people realize, like maybe non-climbers, a lot of non-climbers listen to this podcast, what that means to rope solo. Like you're having to climb the route with a rope, and then uh, you get to the top of the pitch which is the top of the rope and then you rappel down and then you have to clean all the gear and then you're putting in like little hooks uh, on things where you're literally so precarious just hanging from your body weight off these hooks and it's really delicate work right right just um, basically depending on how hard the the pitch is or the root is it's just like marginal placements and you build a chain of them that's how A climbing is rated. It goes from A1 to A5. And if you're climbing in A1 route, you're fairly safe. You're clipping bolt to bolt. But if you're building a system where they're all marginal and you have like a potential of fall that can be big and you might hit a ledge or two on the way and that's how they rate the hardest climbs. From what I can understand, it's like, very similar to white water. You guys have one to five or something, one to six, huh? Yeah. And so did you take, you've taken some big falls, I'll bet, right? Yeah, it happened. And yeah. every single climb, a climbing, you never really expect to take a fall that the placement might blow, but we always hope for that thing not to blow. But sometimes it happens that you're in midair screaming and then you scream twice you scream one third time and you're like oh when i'm gonna stop but yeah isn't there something called the circle of death on that one route what is that there's a on when hell is in session that was the name of the route on the porcelain wall there's this really like delicate feature called the circle of death that i think that whole circle fell off and it's like climbing on porcelain, really like delicate stuff and thin seams. And it was scary. It was like the scariest thing I've ever done. It wasn't like the longest <laughs> route I've ever done, but 
Right. I I was always like going. Sometimes I was climbing a pitch a day, or sometimes yeah. leading the pitch and saying "fuck that." I'm not gonna even bother cleaning cleaning that pitch because my brain was so fried from like being on really thin gear the whole time. So I I just like that's kind of how it went for me. And when you're up there for like eleven days or whatever it is. Like you said, you're alone with your thoughts. Are you listening to music? Are you listening to podcasts? Or are you just using the time to reflect and think about what you're doing to be in the moment? How do you deal with that? Yeah, at the time when I first showed up, 2004 or five, I didn't own a, a cell phone. I didn't own a computer. I heard you showed up with a sleeping bag and I don't know, like a tent or something. That's... you. Your possessions are minimal. <laughs> yeah, I had a pad, a sleeping bag. I think it's like there was a a dumpster on the other side of, of Camp 4 that the people from the lodge area, they were getting new new mattresses. So I went there and drove a, a mattress across the street and got a tarp and made like a tent, put the mattress there, which was really comfy was better than my regular pad and then I put a string across two two trees and put the tarp over and that was like my tent. That's when I was still like paying for camp four and then eventually like we all do, we can't really just spend two two weeks in Yosemite because that's how long they give you to allow you to stay there. Then eventually we had to find our own ways to hide and all that good stuff we all know yeah there's a lot of dirtbag stories that i'm sure you could regale us with but uh let's talk about a bit of your childhood because i mean growing up and you know you climb these incredible routes that are pretty risky you know what i mean i know you're a very good climber you're minimizing risk but you've had a really deep relationship with death as well, maybe starting right out. Like me, I lost my mom when I was 16. I think you lost your mom at this. When you were 16, she died of cancer. So that kind of started out this relationship that you had to right away deal with, right? As a young kid. Yeah. Yeah, how did you start that? How did that death move you forward or not? So just a little bit of my childhood. I was born in the first, like in the biggest city in Brazil. When I was eight years old, we moved to the Amazon because my dad used to work for an airline company. So we got moved up there, which is like living in a different country. You're almost on the border with Venezuela. The culture was like Brazil is like a huge, massive country. And yeah, just living by the Amazon River just with this amazing nature around me. Yeah. Going on his uh, tours on boats along the river, seeing birds, snakes, crocodiles. Then eventually we moved down south, and that's where I spent most of my teenage years until I, I finished high school. And when I was on second year of high school, that's when my mom gotten really weak and she was like battling cancer for years. She lived 
from the time she did her first mastectomy, she lived a, a pretty good life for 16 years, raised us, and eventually the cancer came back into her bones and metastasized, and she was like barely able to walk. And at that age, I was still like going through high school and, and still like super attached to your mom, expecting to have more time with a mother figure, a female figure. And I also have a sister that we've always been a super tight family. So we all went through our own process of grieving, you know, the, the lack of her in our lives. So did my dad. My dad was in love with her, stayed with her until her last breath, did everything he could to support her. We all did in our own way. But yeah, it was it was tough. But my sister, I feel like she's she went through the process of grieving at the time, just as it happened. And I feel like my way to process was like pushing everything aside because I didn't really want to accept it. So eventually it caught up to me when my sister was all healed up, maybe like a year later, I was... Then, like, one, it hit me. It was bound to happen. It was going to, to come after me. It didn't matter if I went to China or tried to hide in anywhere. I just had to face my own demons and accept what happened. And it was the process of right when it happened. That's how I took it. And I got really depressed and rebelled. And, yeah, it was a punk. How did you rebel? Uh, I was drinking way too much, maybe, and not had a good report with my dad, even though he really wanted to support me and just go to therapy. If I can't really help as your dad, let's find some professional help. Eventually, I accepted help and started getting better. But that also launched you, right? Your mom passing wasn't the reason that you left, but I bet you your dad was like, hey, man, go have an adventure and heal up, right? Like maybe that was connected. Yeah, he just didn't want me to like fall into the being like an alcoholic or using drugs to to cover that up. But when I turned 19, I spent like a couple of years in Brazil dealing with my stuff. I grew a lot, just spent a lot of time with my sister and my dad. And eventually I told them, I have to go. I don't feel like Brazil is for me. And I just took this adventure and just started writing my own book. I had this all this blank canvas to, to paint, to write. And I feel like that also like having this independent life, going through the struggles of, oh, this is how you do things. You don't have um the support of your parents anymore so i just had to just on the road like learning languages communicating with people figuring things out as i went i never really made plans like oh in five years i'm gonna be there i just like life naturally took me there so i'm still the same way i maybe should change a little bit my line of thought but it's working and when you finally got to Yosemite, as you said, you mentioned you met all these legends. One of them was Dean Potter, who is a really famous, amazing climber. 
one of the best climbers of his whole generation. And he became a friend and you guys got into base jumping, which is like a sport that, that seems always connected with climbing. It seems like a lot of climbers become wingsuit base jumpers. Right. Um, Dean, Brian Cork, my friend from Brazil, Fernando Mota, they were already jumping. And just by watching them doing what they were doing, connecting the climbing and the link-ups and with base jumping, we all really wanted to get on board and have fun with them. And Dean was always like so kind. He was never like, oh, this is not for you. This is only for a certain type of people. Like he always shared, okay, go do your homework and find a skydiving drop zone. And when you're ready, come back out here and we'll go jump together. And after working on the Huber project, we made a bunch of money and it's like, okay, now let's go, which was like myself. And now let's buy a wingsuit and a sky <laughs> skydiving kit and all that stuff. Right. <laughs> and go before, learn how to base jump. Before we did that, we just moved to the drop zone and took our accelerated free fall course in Davis, California, Ivo Ninov, myself, Emma McNeely, Aaron Jones, Gabe Hopper, and this Norwegian guy that was hanging out in the park at the time. So it was like six of us. And there we met this amazing family that they all knew where we were going. We six climbers wanted to learn how to skydive and they know when climbers show up what they really wanted to do want to do they don't just want to spend money tons of money to jump out of airplanes they just want to go back into the mountains learn whatever they need to learn jumping out of an airplane and then eventually go back to the mountains and start jumping off and that's all created like a big concern for a lot of skydivers even though a bunch of skydivers are base jumpers but yeah they were like little concerned because we were like overly excited with just getting our shit done and go go back to Yosemite. Yeah. And you essentially, for people who maybe haven't seen base jumping, you either hike to the top of the cliff or you climb it and then you dive off with your squirrel suit or your, yeah. Is that what they call it? Squirrel suits and wing suits. Yeah. Or the a brand of a wing suit. Yeah, so you, with your wingsuit and you escape from the rock and then you got to pull your chute and it all has to happen pretty fast. And even though it's a celebration, it's fun as hell, it's also got some risks to it. Do you think you, growing up, you were always interested in that, in those kind of things, climbing and those kind of pursuits? Or after your mom died, maybe that affected you in some way where you're like, okay, screw it, right? Let's go for it. Yeah, I never, even though I was an adventurous kid jumping off like big platforms, did a little bit of um, diving. I think that's where the base jumping comes from. Just like from being able to really know or have body awareness and being able to enter the water safely, which sometimes it didn't go the right way. Like sometimes I splatted on the water on a... 30 foot platform, like jumping off of a 30 foot platform. Right. And that hurts. So I learned, I also learned with my mistakes, base jumping, it's not as forgiving. We are a part of the community where 
a lot of our friends that took the sport and pushed it, they're no longer here. Being in Graham, being one of them, my, my friend Fernando Mota, my wife Allison, but we all knew when we started that we were dealing with death. And I'm, at least with me and my wife, we were super honest with where we were going. Cause I didn't really want to tell her like, okay, like I'm concerned about your safety and the risk and all of that. And then saying, I'm going to keep jumping. That's how we met. So it'd be selfish. Your, your wife you're talking about, Allison. Yeah. Right. I'm talking about Allison. And as tough as it was when things happened, I feel like she feel like that was good to have the honest conversations about death, you know? I feel like, you know, like maybe I'm being like armchair psychiatrist or something though, but your mom passes away. You're like, Hey man, life is short, right? Like we, we got to live, we got to live fully. We got to have sort of like embrace this relationship with risk and adventure. I don't know. It feels connected, at least maybe for me when I lost my mom. You lost Dean too. You just alluded to that. So he became a good friend of yours and it was him and was it Graham? Graham Hunt. Yeah. 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 They they died on the Yeah, tell jumped. us about how they died. They died jumping in Yosemite off that point. I never went into much of like of details of how it happened because it doesn't really matter. They hit the ground. And when you're dealing with high speeds and, and gravity, those don't, don't go super well together. But yeah, it was a, a big bummer for the whole community, the, the local community here that were friends with Dean, friends with Graham. And yeah, we went, we all supported each other during that process. My friend Heather, she was Dean's roommate for a long time so they've known of personal things about each other it was tough even being in yosemite these days there's uh definitely not having those guys around there's a piece that's missing that we all got used to spend like dean was for me he was like a spiritual leader in a way where if she connected with you, he connected with you, you know, and he would do like anything to bring you into the scene and make you a part of the community. And I feel so blessed that I, I got that around here. I know to a local these days for spending so much time, but yeah, not having Dean around is, yeah, it's tough. I think about them all the time. Every year I try to remember their existence, what they've done, what they've accomplished on their time on, on planet Earth, and make a post and write some words. Did you, at some point after their death, did you think maybe this is a crazy thing we're doing, or maybe we're pushing the envelope too much, or what was your thinking after those deaths? Or did you just keep going? Hey, because it's easy to separate ourselves. People, I climb and people die in climbing accidents all the time. And I'm like constantly separating myself from them. Gosh, well, they made a mistake and I won't do that. What was your thinking? My thinking was that 
with all the deaths since the beginning, since I started jumping in 2006, it was like such an addicting activity, type of activity that we always, like whenever people died, I always say like, yeah, just let's go celebrate their lives, whatever they were, they wanted to do, they were doing. But maybe, I don't know if it was like, maybe too naive. I definitely look at things in a different way because I also had my near-death experience at some point. So it's not until like shit hits the fan really hard and you see like lights going out that you start looking at things with a different perspective. My friend Chris McNamara, he quit jumping. And I think from what I heard right before Stanley died, he was about to get back into jumping. And then he said, that's it. I, I don't want to do it anymore. But when Dean and Graham died, two weeks later, I was up there again, you know, like just do like a memorial jump. And ironically enough, I almost became a part of the memorial. I splatted on the ground hard. And luckily, I they were able to fuse me back together, fuse my spine, take care of my aneurysm from impacting the ground super hard, uh, broke my foot, had a pneumothorax, broke my sternum, two ribs. Like I was in pretty bad shape. I was in the ICU for three days fighting for my life. Eventually they stabilized me. And that's when I told myself, even though sometimes I look at all these cliffs and I've gone back to Switzerland where I, I've done most of my jumps because of the legality in the Dolomites. You know, they're like people jump and no one cares. They all know that people are going to keep dying because of the nature of this sport. But I definitely like, I brought a, a different type of perspective into the sport. And I said, maybe I should take this as a, as a sign, you know, and then I'll go back to climbing, which I can have a lot, still have a lot of fun. And I feel like even though climbing can be risky, the risk management on climbing, if you compare it to base jumping, you can manage in a better way. Yeah. Before you stopped base jumping, you were base jumping with your girlfriend and then your wife, Allison. And I hate to be so, you know, deep here, but tell us about the relationship. Tell us about Allison. So Allison... She came into my life because of skydiving. We had like mutual friends. Eventually we met at the drop zone. She was excited to meet me and we exchanged a couple of phone calls. And then she came to the drop zone to make some jumps. And she used to work cause at a brewery 40 miles from the skydiving drop zone. So she brought like a couple of growlers and it's like it started in 2008 and the rest is kind of history. It was just like we couldn't just be apart from each other anymore. We really connected and we had this amazing activity. We were excited on sharing together. We used to go to the Bay Area to jump off like these power towers or go to these big antennas or go to the Auburn Bridge. All sorts, all types of objects that we were just like, going to the Bixby Bridge and even though all these places are illegal to jump 
there's not much you can do like here in the states everything is illegal so if you want to go make legal jumps you got to go to europe or go to brazil or go to a different country that doesn't look at like this liability the same way and uh, you guys eventually got married and you went off to go yeah. base jumping on your honeymoon and she passed base jumping as well right yeah we got married in yosemite cathedral beach all our friends from Davis, our skydiving friends came to the ceremony. Her family flew from the East Coast to be here for our special date. And after that, we worked for almost like a year. And we told ourselves, like, let's save up some money. And then a year later, we went to Europe. It was our first international trip. We stopped in New York to visit her family and spend time with them. Before we took off on this trip, we we're going to be gone for like about a month. Going, we We're supposed to go to Switzerland and France and Italy. We ended up doing Italy first. And on her third jump from that cliff, Monte Brento, in between Arco and Trento. Yeah. Um, it became super popular for jumping also. Because it's like an L-cap-sized cliff and it's very, very st steep. Um, yeah, she didn't really have a, a super good exit. Then eventually when she started drift drifting her body away from the cliff, she saw that she was getting too close, pulled her parachute, and um, she had this thing called like a hundred an 80 line twist that it takes time for you to correct and get onto your brakes and your lines to start flying away it can happen with any of us but the point was that she was too close to the cliff and she had a cliff strike and she started tumbling down the mountain this big slab and she stopped she came to a stop about 90 feet before she hit the the ground and her parachute lines got caught on a flake, and that's where she stayed. And she had her camera. I know that she didn't die right away, because people that had to talk to the police and write a report, they went through her footage to understand what happened. I never watched it. My friends all told me there's no point of watching it, because there's a lot of suffering evolved in that moment when you're like fighting for your life and you're begging for help and no one is there right. to help you and it took me about 40 minutes to get to the base of the cliff i went up this fire road it was like a super hot day and um eventually when i got there i started screaming and yelling and trying to get something out out of her it was thought about free soloing up to her but I also didn't really want to put her life in risk maybe if I touch her parachute lines it was she could have fallen those 90 feet and if she had any chance of living the best way to do it or, or approach it it was just to call rescue and they came on with the long line and I was communicating with the guy at the end of the long line when he got to her and got her pulse he said she's got minimal pulse and 
I wouldn't. She's like basically like out. And when they landed the helicopter with her at the landing area, and I went down, drove down with the firefighters that was that were with me. They when they showed up, they said, "Yeah, she's gone." And then I had to. I was numb, you know, because of the beginning of our trip, first week of our trip, and she huge fatality happened. And luckily, I had some really good friends. My friends like Michele and Georgia, they're locals. They got to know her before we we went to the cliff, and they were super excited for us to start our life together to go on these amazing adventures. They definitely helped me with the process of the cremation and then doing like all the paperwork and getting her ashes back home. Yeah, it was definitely good to have that type of support. I was, once again, I was numb. I was maybe pushing things to the side once again to just to try to get all the legal stuff done. I definitely didn't push it to the side like I did with my mom because I, I learned from that first mistake. But yeah, I went through the process of grieving day by day as clear-headed as I could. And we all, we were a part of this amazing community, the skydiving community, the climbing community. We lose people, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but every once in a while, like someone pushing the envelope and people die. So I feel like we have, we do have this community that brings us like the support we need. And uh, I, the same way it was given to me when it happened to Allison, I try to do give it back the same way and be there for my friends when they lose their partners. Yeah. Look, your whole life has been fascinating and important. Your relationship with death is definitely like deeper than most people's. So of course you were numb and, but, and you had to deal with all the business side, which was the, imagine a, almost a good distraction. But did that affect you in terms of like your own outlook going forward? Or did you just go, okay, back to business, back to living? Like, how, I'm just trying to get it, like how crazy that, that must have been. Were you like, life is unfair? What was going on as you were struggling through that? Yeah, we, I think there were so many thoughts going through my head. Sometimes I, yeah, I went there. It's just, I thought it was unfair. I was like, sometimes I said, okay, this is what she wanted to be doing. That's what I wanted to be doing. So I struggled for about a year and a half to get myself back together. Like I gave myself the time to process, to deal with that huge loss that had just happened. And I also had an amazing support of, of her family, of her parents, because they lost their baby also. And at the same time, they were so like, they were arms open to, to say, you're part of the family. We know how hard it is for you. And we mutually supported each other. It was so beautiful. But it's like we all go through this roller coaster. Sometimes, especially at the beginning, the first year, first two years, it, it's different for everyone. Like that goes through the same thing. But yeah, the first year is definitely like the roller coaster. You've been there. Sometimes you think you're doing good and then you crash. 
And then you have to pick your pieces up and say, okay, let's get back up and start crawling, start walking, and then eventually, like, you start stumbling again. But then I feel like it start. for me, it started happening less and less because I knew if I just, like, didn't get my shit together and it's just, like, started getting mentally, my, my mental health back, but I'd always stumble or falling. I didn't really want to fall for the same thing anymore. At some point, I had to let some of that go and start walking my own path. And this is another type of conversation we had when she was alive. If anything happens to either of us, eventually we're going to go through the process of grieving, but we're going to get to find, we're going to need to find another partner. We're not, we're going to have to start moving on. Otherwise, we're just going to dig a, a hole on the ground, bury, bury ourselves alive. I just didn't want that to happen because I felt that I was healthy, that I had all these amazing things that I still wanted to do. So I, I basically started jumping maybe two to three weeks after she died because I really needed something to hold on to, like that sense of community, that sense of adventure. So that didn't really spook me too much. Right. I knew I was a, a good jumper, a safe jumper, and things can happen. But I really wanted to get myself back to... That's, I think that helped a lot. But then back to you had that one jump where you also had a line twist, I think, right? And you were trying to remedy it and you couldn't and you hit a tree, right? And really got hurt. And I think like we're all trying to extrapolate meaning in our lives, right? Are you a faith kind of person where you were like, God, I hit this tree. I really hurt my body. I'm lucky to be alive. Maybe this is the universe speaking to me or maybe this is Allison speaking to me. I don't know. Did you have those internal conversations? I did. When I hit the ground, when I tried to fix whatever was wrong with my parachute, I feel like that tree was on my way to help me survive, even though I hit the tip of the tree and then I rode 150 feet down until I hit the ground. And I had all, all those injuries I, I've already talked about. I thought it was just going to be a matter of like minutes until lights had gone out and it was like, this is, this is how it goes for everyone. That's, But then lights didn't go out, you know, and it was at peace. I was really like at peace with my surroundings and what happened. It's just, okay, I wish I could have one more opportunity to at least call my family and tell them that I love them and all these things, which right. now is feasible. But I was at peace. I accepted it. And once I assessed my body, assessed my legs, and I was like, okay, maybe I should go on war mode now and and start crawling out of here. And, and that's what I did. Just eventually I... I made it to the hospital and I always believed in, in God and the higher power, whatever you call it. And two, two weeks 
prior to my accident, Dean and Graham had passed two to three weeks. Yeah. And I felt more than I, because Allison had died five months prior to my accident. But since they were, it was so fresh and I definitely felt their presence there with me seeing it's not your turn. It's not your time. We're going to be here with you and support through from where we are and I support you. So I feel like they were, I felt their presence. They felt their entities right there next to me. Sure. Maybe because it was like on that, on that mode that I wasn't like quite dead. I wasn't, it was fighting really hard. Maybe it was more sensitive to feeling their presence, but that's what happened. Yeah. God, there's so many things running through my brain because sometimes like when I fall short on a climb or something like that, I always think like, maybe it's these people in my life that are guiding me and that failure is okay. Like they've, they're protecting me in a way, you know, they're there with me. I feel that same presence when things are tough or I've fallen short in some way. So it sounds like a, a, that's a natural thing to, to feel, huh? I think so. And I, I've always been in tune with my, you know, saying, oh, I, everything is lining up correctly, like winds and the weather. And I turned my back to jumps before because I'm listening to these voices. And that, that one day when I went for that jump, when I got hurt, I was listening to the same voices, but I went against it. It was, was one of the only times I went against these voices and I was like, why am I doing this? Like, I'm not feeling, it was from the night before until I woke up, until I started hiking. And when I had my gear, I was dressed up and I'm like, I don't really know why I'm doing this, but I've done this 500 times. It's going to be just another jump. I should have walked back specifically on that jump things weren't right in my head. I had these voices telling me not to go and I went. It's hard to interpret those voices though, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm grateful for everything that happened because if it didn't happen, it could have been worse on some other jump because I wasn't really going to, if that didn't happen, I wasn't going to quit jumping. Yeah. Yeah. I was probably going to die jumping or so that was a, a good thing that happened. I'm glad I'm alive and I learned my lesson. I have a lot of friends that they had some really bad accidents that they survived and they still jump. So it's like a personal choice that we all made and there's no right or wrong. How have those encounters with death changed you? Do you feel like a different person or do you feel like the same guy? I think... It's a hard one to answer, but I don't really feel like I, I changed that much as a person, you know, like we're all striving to become better humans with all these experiences we have in lives. Uh, so I'm always trying to learn with my mistakes, learn with my past experiences, what I could do better on down the road maybe look at things from a different type of perspective that brings us like the, these near-death experiences i feel like you definitely start looking at things 
giving different weight to different things. So I can't really put another bad injury on my back because I already have 10 screws and two titanium rods and in there. So if I'm, if I chose to go back and start skydiving, skydiving can be a safer type of activity if you compare to base jumping. Having two parachute systems, jumping from an airplane 13,000 feet instead of three to 4,000 feet off of a cliff. You can also have a hard opening that can be really snappy and damage what I have. So I would be jeopardizing my health and and I I chose to to sell all my gear and maybe that was a, a very good decision. I don't know, not maybe. It was definitely, I feel like it was a good decision. I almost, the doctors don't really know until the day on how my vertebrae got so compressed and so shattered that I, none of those fragments hit my spinal cord. That was a blessing. I have a friend that he had one, a friend from Brazil, he was on a car accident back in the day and broke a little tiny bit of one vertebrae and he became a paraplegic. I broke and shattered and compressed five of them and none of those affected my spinal cords. So it was definitely like something to take out of that, you know, like, okay, sell your gear and call it good and go back to climbing. Is it? And I noticed just from getting to know you over the last few months, you're really a person who lives in the moment. Maybe you always were like that, but you really live in the moment. You have great joy. You love hanging out with your friends and laughing and you're incredibly patient, but yet you can fire on a dime really hard and just really get after these big, hard climbs. But you seem to have a really nice balance in your life. And I don't know, maybe that that balance has been hard earned. I'm not sure. I try. Once again, I'm striving to be better, you know, but I have, we all have our moments in life and it's okay, you know, like with whatever we've gone through and there's like really hard things and having to break the through these barriers deep inside and some of them are harder for us. Some of them take more time. Some people can break through them. Some people cannot. They keep going back to to step one. But for me, I feel like I'm a pretty patient per- type of person. I Everyone here really enjoys spending time with me, you know? Yeah. I re- don't really like, besides the a post here and... I make, it's just like this, what brings me joy these days, besides talking about what I've accomplished, is just to make more memories, you know, and just like getting to know you. It's been so like refreshing to be able to say, okay, you know, like getting invited and you feeling that you can trust me to take all of us to that remote place and us like, building this solid team because it was like even Hans said and he's climbed El Cap hundreds and hundreds of times <laughs> and he said 
was one of the hardest things you've ever done. So like it was hard when we needed a good core group of people to get out there. And it definitely felt this amazing connection with you and Felipe. We're super mm -hmm. grateful. I felt for... that trust right away, except when you were driving. Right. Then the let's <laughs> get the driving part, because then we can, there's like a whole podcast about yeah. the driving and and the whole experience yeah. with, that we had. But that was a part of the part of the process. But I'm very grateful and I feel like, yeah, I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing, um, traveling the world. I'm sure death is, is a part of our life. Like I, I used to be more afraid of death than what I am now. Maybe because of I've been experimenting with mushrooms a lot more and like doing these mushroom ceremonies. Eventually, I want to try this ayahuasca, go to Peru, mix a climbing trip with an ayahuasca ceremony, just to really like. I feel like I, it's like being on a hundred sessions of therapy, but just like in one sit that I. It's not that they're telling me what to do, but it brings me, definitely brings me more awareness as like this living being that's like this, his body's just flesh, you know, we're just going to keep moving and coming back here to go through whatever we didn't really learn. I feel like we're giving this experience on planet earth just to, to become better humans, to strive, to just and we bring our lights and we share them with people and that's it. Yeah, I agree. That's it. Yeah. Nick, it's really amazing to have gotten to know you. And I definitely, our little team on Lotus, you were fantastic. And I trust you with my life. And I think you've helped people, all of us face death. All of us have death in our lives, but I think you've given us a lot of insight into how to wrestle with this really hard thing. We're all going to die. You're right. You're just fully living. And it's really impressive to, to see how you struggled through all that. I don't think you, you would say you're ever healed, right? Because these are things you always wrestle with, but you're, you're continuing to move forward and trying to learn th from it. Yeah. And I also know that's, it's going to come. Eventually it's going to come. My dad's going to die. Someone's going to die. And there's not a sad time because I had friends dying to cancer. I had friends dying to like on really bad car accidents. And you never know. Sometimes like you get this phone call and it's like, oh, someone's like really close to you is gone. Like a few years ago, a friend of mine died on a car, car crash and he was talking about coming back to the U.S. and going climbing and jumping because he was also a skydiver. I wasn't jumping. I was out of the jumping scene right. already, but it was always like, it was always a pleasure to see him and we became like brothers. And so I'm not really, it's like a part of our lives. We're always going to eventually going to see someone dying of old age or dying of a random thing. So I'm trying to take it for myself. As every day is a new day, we all have the the power to wake up and like with help from others or pulling whatever we have from within us 
to go through these barriers that are brought us. And that's, I feel like it shapes us who we are. It hardens us and in the same way, softens us to, us, right. to, to different things. So it's just like, that's kind of my take on death right now. As much as I don't really want to die, <laughs> I feel like I'm living on this like extra mode. Since my accident, I'm always like taking, okay, let's live because you're um, living on an extra tank. It was given to you or I don't really know how to say that, but yeah. just so An extra tank of gas. I like that. Yeah. Extra tank of gas. And then I've been able to refuel it and I've been trying to refuel with good things and like you said moving on with life there's so many things that are opening up like the lotus trip it was amazing and now i'm about to go back to patagonia you know and experience that beautiful place and the people and the culture everything that comes along with it because for me it's just if it was just the climbing yeah, it'd be fun, but eventually you need more. You need like the community. For me, it's always been that way. And whenever I go to this place, I I need this like cultural shock or going of going to to museums and seeing something totally different other than climbing. Yeah. Well, it is a gift, Nick, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're with us. And my friend. Uh told me one time i think he's like my age he said hey we made it this far we might as well make it to the end right and we're doing it yeah we'll live hard and we'll hopefully live long and have a good life uh, thank you so much for being here for the hour on this podcast and i'm looking forward to more adventures together same here eric thanks nick excited to have you guys back in the valley it was an amazing week we had we shared the new friends I got to meet because of you and your talk. Eventually, I really want to go and watch you talking on stage. I know it was like the Yosemite facelift was, it was about the film, but you got, you were really insightful on a lot of things you shared with Timmy and like Timmy can, it's really articulate on how to ask his questions. And then I got to learn a lot about you and you're always like you've always been a huge inspiration for me since i first met you and getting to know you and calling call you a friend and have this amazing connection we share in the mountains and just being able to call you an amazing friend nice that i hope like our friendship lasts for until we go yeah good job all right i'm screen fist bumping you thanks nick okay no barriers to everyone. Thank you so much. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Chonk, that's me, sound design and mixing by Tyler Cotman. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it. Share it and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. That's NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day. See you.